It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there. I'm your host, Simon Wimes here. One of my writers, in this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt, has written a script for me. The Butcher Baker, Alaska's most dangerous game. And I remember getting the email about this, and I was like, ah... No! I was like, Matt, is this about cannibalism? Because you've called it the Butcher Baker. Which makes me... I know these are just two, like, regular jobs and stuff, but when you combine them into one, I'm like, wait. Is this guy butchering people and then making them into cakes? And Matt was like, no, but I'll look into cannibal stuff for you. And I'm like, don't... <laughs> oh, cannibals. <laughs> it's like, it's those things It's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be worse than murder. And then it's like, oh yeah, cannibalism. Yeah. Yeah, but apparently it's not about that. I don't know what it's about because that is the format of this show. I've never read this before. Matt has written it for me. I'm going to read it. We're going to explore it together. It's going to be fun. It's probably not going to be fun because the first line is terror, panic, pure, unadulterated fear. (laughs) Oh, welcome to The Casual Criminalist. That was the look on the face of a young woman in the early morning of June the 13th, 1983, as she ran for her life down the runway of Merrill Field in Anchorage, Alaska. We've mentioned it before. Alaska. Alaska's strange. Oh, I watched a brilliant... Oh, there was a great line in a TV show. They were, like, negotiating with the Russians. Was it... I think... I'm re-watching Stargate. I think it could have been on Stargate. There was this brilliant line. And uh, one of the characters like, how did the negotiations go with the Russians? Like, well, let's just say, unless we're willing to give back Alaska... We're not going to get what we want. <laughs> it's like, Mwah! but Alaska, I feel we talked about it before. It's where like people run away to. <laughs> so there's criminals. Sweat and also Sarah Palin. Sweat dripping down her face in a mixture of exertion and fright, her bare feet aching with each step as they smack on the rough asphalt, her barely clothed body clo- cold in the brisk Alaskan air, the handcuffs around her wrists digging painfully into her skin. All the while from behind her, she hears hurried footfalls, along with a voice, a voice filled with anger and panic, as it calls out to her to stop, or else he'll kill her. Honestly, keep running, because it sounds like he's gonna kill you anyway. (laughs) Go, go, go! Given what she'd been forced to endure over the last several hours, every synapse in her brain was screaming at her to keep going. If she stopped and went back, she was dead. If he ran her down and caught her, she was dead. No matter what she did, if she didn't keep running as fast as she could, she was gonna be dead. And so that's what she did. She ran, and she ran as fast as she could, eventually making it down to 6th Avenue. She proceeded to wave down a passing truck driven by Robert Ute. Seeing her in such a state, he stopped and asked her what was wrong. She jumped into his passenger seat and screamed at him to drive, which he proceeded to do. As Ute pulled away, a young runner finally turned to look out of the window, still terrified that her pursuer was close by. But he was nowhere to be seen. This sounds like the beginning of a movie. Like, 
a horror movie, an action movie, something like this. Ute drove his new disheveled passenger to an establishment called The Mush Inn, where he dropped her off. She leapt from the car and rushed inside, frantically asking the woman behind the desk to call her boyfriend at the Big Timber Motel. His job done, Ute pulled away and headed off to work, but not before calling the police to inform them of what had occurred and where they could find the poor woman. Good for you, mate. I feel like this sort of thing definitely yeah be like okay do you want me to call the police she's like no 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 call the police anyway good for you not that she said don't but she didn't specifically ask for it i guess and yeah good for this guy members of the anchorage pd soon arrived and they were informed that their victim had called a taxi and headed to the motel all on her own there's something more going on here right because if she's been like abducted by this dude or whatever he's gonna kill her surely the first phone call you make is to the police it's like yeah boyfriend later to the police first Make sure everything's okay. Arriving there, they were taken to room 110, where they were greeted at the door by our poor, unfortunate protagonist. Barefoot and still handcuffed, this was 17-year-old Cindy Paulson, a local sex worker and dancer who had been working the streets of Anchorage for some time, even at such a young age. Okay, so she's... This could be a reason why she didn't call the police. Um, I think, obviously, in that situation, the police's duty is to go and find the person who's fucking you know, potentially killing people rather than dealing with, uh, I'm assuming sex work is illegal in Alaska, but uh, it could be a reason not to call the police, perhaps. Managing to uncuff her, they clothed her, tried to calm her down, and brought her downtown in an attempt to get the story behind the whole ordeal. Once in a room with officers, one of them being Alaskan state trooper detective Glenn Floth, and feeling a bit safer, Cindy manages to muster up the courage and recount the painful memories of the last 24 hours. In the early morning hours of that day, Cindy was walking the streets looking to find some work, a quick job to earn her some much needed cash. It was then that a car pulled up to her off the street. Behind the wheel was a thin, wiry man with red hair, large glasses, an acne scarred face, and a noticeable stutter. This is exactly the sort of dude who's going to find it very hard once his description is out there to hide, because those are uh, notable characteristics. Rolling down the window, he offered her $200 for oral sex. No more no less, to which she agreed. However, after getting into his car and in the middle of the act, her new mark whipped out a pair of handcuffs, cuffed one of her hands, and pulled out a gun, sticking it to her temple before she had time to react. Saying that he would kill her if she didn't do as he asked, he drove her back to his house at gunpoint, brought her inside, and took her down into his basement, also known as his trophy room. Oh my god, did she know it was called his trophy room? Because if she did, I mean, that's game over right? How does she escape from this? Now, I don't mean trophies like ones you'd get for winning a contest or a sporting event. Nobody thought you did, Matt. Nope, I mean trophies as in a room decorated almost entirely in the heads, bodies, and skins of many different wildlife that he had killed, stuffed, and mounted. Oh my god. I really thought that was gonna be people. And I was like, whoa, this is a huge killer who I've never even heard of. But it's wildlife, which is uh, weird, but less bad. He was an avid hunter, after all. If that wasn't creepy enough, and I mean, I get people are into hunting. I find it a bit weird, like, mounting all the animals on the walls. Like, there's old castles you go to here, and it's like, there'll just be, like, walls filled with just, like, the antlers. And I'm like, all right, it's a bit creepy. I mean, I get hunting. I understand that. I don't think it's something I'd be particularly into myself, but I get, you know, this, but, like, the trophies and stuff is a bit intense. If that wasn't creepy enough, her abductor had a chain latched to the ceiling, dangling in the middle of the room. He chained her up and proceeded to rape and torture poor Cindy for hours on end. Once he was finished with his disgusting deeds, he told the violated and sobbing woman that he was tired and simply went into the other room to have a bit of a nap on the couch. Let's step back a moment 
And just imagine that. This monster abducts and desecrates a woman, then decides to just casually catch a few Zs as if nothing was wrong. Talk about cold. Then, waking up this horrid piece of human waste, unchains her, and says that she shouldn't worry. He likes her. He likes her so much that he's going to take her up to his cabin for a while. There's nothing to worry about. He's taken plenty of girls up there before. Oh my god, there's two things that are so crazy. There's nothing to worry about? Bro, you just took her to your basement and repeatedly raped and tortured her. There's plenty of shit to worry about. And also the fact that he's taken plenty of girls up there before and you've assumedly seen his face. Um, where did those other girls go? How have you not been caught if this has been repeated before? Because he's killed them. This is terrifying. There's an excerpt from the uh, detective interviewing her. Cindy. He just said, well, don't worry about it. You know, everything is going to be okay. I'm not going to hurt you. And then he actually told me about the other girls. Detective Floth says, what did he say about the other girls? Cindy says, there were seven. That he had seven other girls there before. You see, when he said that, I knew he had killed them. What girl is going to go and do this? You know, would let this man do this to them. Well, I knew he killed them. He said he had seven other girls, and that he usually keeps them about a week. Detective Floth, how long was he going to keep you? Cindy says, he said that, well, he didn't say. He told me that since he liked me so good, he would take me to his cabin and make love to me one time, and then we would be back. So I'd be back by around 11 o'clock in the afternoon, and, you know, I said, okay, fine, that's good. And I acted like I wanted to go. The transcript ends there. Still, keeping her handcuffed, a kidnapper forced her into his car and started driving them up to Merrill Field. It was during this trip that Cindy decided what to do. She would have to bide her time, and when given the chance, she would escape. I decided to wait till we get to the airport, and I was thinking, wow, we're going to the airport. He said, Merrill Airfield, and I was staying at the Big Timber, so I knew, you know, I'm getting the f out of there. So I just waited. Finally, I just was so scared, I just ran. Once they arrived at the airfield, a captor drove up to the hangar where his plane, a Piper PA-18 Super Cub, was stored. Getting out of the car, he started loading up some supplies, one of which, Cindy noticed, was a large hunting rifle. Knowing at this point that she was dead, should she be taken to the cabin, she made her move. As soon as her kidnapper's back was turned, she moved to the back of the car, still handcuffed, hid her shoes as evidence of her being there, managed to open the door, and took off running, which is where we first found her. I liked the, the, I mean, I know he's killed seven people before, assumedly. Uh, assuming? Assumedly? Is that even a word? Assumedly? Doesn't matter. So he's killed people before, but I like that we're starting off with the good news of, like, this is the woman that escaped and got away, and it's not like then she was captured later, and this is from his confession. This is from her talking to the police later, which I always like a lot more than the, and we know of this story because he confessed to all of his crimes later. And that's like, oh no, I like it when we get it from the victims, because then the victims are alive still. The police were speechless. This was so much to take in, so many awful acts that this woman had to endure for several hours. Writing every detail down, they took her back to the airfield to see if they could identify the plane. She guided them right to the hangar, where the plane was still docked. She identified it instantly, and a nearby worker identified the car that had been parked out front of the hangar earlier in the day. It was then that they got a name. The owner of the plane and the car. It's now, as the darkness begins to engulf us once more, that things start to come into focus. It's now that we can truly dive into the abyss and explore the evil who had come to be known as the most vicious, sadistic, sinister, and hands down the absolute worst serial killer in Alaskan history. The Butcher Baker, the Big Game Hunter. This is the tale 
of Robert Hansen. Wasn't there a famous spy called Robert Hansen? Because I feel there was. Um, yeah, wasn't this the guy who spied for Soviet and Russian intelligence services from the US 1979 to 2001? Um, He's in prison now, presumably. Yeah, he's at ADX Florence. He's a big boy prison. <laughs> 15 consecutive life sentences without parole. Oh my God, dude. That's intense. Well, that's what happens when you leak state secrets. And when um, when Matt first pitched this to me, I thought he was we were going to be doing a piece on that Robert Hansen. But this is a different Robert Hansen who has committed crimes that probably have similar sentences but couldn't be more wildly different buckle up it's only gonna get worse from here so let the hunts begin today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends over at shopify make it simple to sell from anywhere look whether you're selling i don't know socks i recently had a sock subscription from a website you just go on there you click on it and then every month i get a little bill and i get a packet of socks in the mail and I'm like, that's it. I have to say, say, like, I bought it. I didn't. It was a gift. And then I continued it because I was like, this is rather nice. But look, whatever you're looking to sell online, start selling with Shopify. Join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. Look, with Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand. You discover new customers and you build a relationship that will keep them coming back. All sort of business basics that Shopify make easy for you. It covers all of the sales channels to successfully grow your business from in-person POS system, which I believe stands for point of sale, which is like where you got, you know, you've got a little stand in the market or whatever, and you're doing this through Shopify, which kind of blows my mind. Uh, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram, <laughs> like right to the other, you got your dude in the market selling it, you know, in person. And then on the opposite side, you got TikTok. It's like, everything is handled by Shopify. It's amazing. Every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you can too. When you're ready to get your idea out into the world, just do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Look, you can sign up for a free trial, which is nice, so you can figure it all out. See if Shopify is for you, which it will be, which it will be. Just go to shopify.com slash casual, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash casual to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash casual. And now back to today's show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. A stuttering start. So let's rewind a bit and set our stage proper. Robert Christian Hansen was born in the small town of Esterville, Iowa on February the 15th, 1939. The eldest of two children of Danish parents is mother Edna, Ma- Ed- Edna Margaret Peterson and his father Christian Hansen. In 1942, the family moved to California, but it wouldn't be for long as they returned to Iowa in 1949, settling in Pocahontas. Yes, there's a town of my surprises because, like, Pocahontas, Pocahontas? And the next line Matt writes is, Yes, there's a town named after the famous Native American princess. It's the only cool thing about the place. With a population of only 1,867 as of 2020, is the very different definition of a small town. I made a video all about Pocahontas, 
And uh, let's just say that the Disney version is uh, just a little bit sanitized from the uh, pretty horrific reality of Pocahontas. I can't, I, it must have been on uh, a channel I was called Biographics when we did that. And uh, yeah, if you just want to spoil a Disney movie and learn a bit of actual factual history, go check that video out. Obviously, after finishing watching this video or listening to this podcast, you know. A home Robert's life was difficult. His father was a rather domineering man and forced his young son to work in the family bakery, known as Pocahontas Home Bakery, even from an early age. Earlier, we noted that Robert had a rather notable stutter, and it's here that we can thank old dad for that. Robert was always naturally left-handed, but for one reason or another, Christian forced him to do his work and other tasks with his right hand, and because of this difficult mental switch, he somehow got wires crossed, resulting in a lifelong stutter. Do we know that for fact? That sounds like medical speculation, unless there's a common thing of people having to switch hands and then getting a stutter. It could have just been at the same time, or from something else, so... Seems like a bit of a stretch. Or maybe this is something that is well medically known, but I'm pretty skeptical. Um, also, didn't people used to think, like, doesn't left hand, doesn't the word sinister come, this could be a total urban legend, so don't take this as fact from fact boy, but doesn't sinister, isn't it like Latin for something like left-handed or something? Because they used to think, like, people who were left-handed were doing the devil's work or something crazy like that. So they used to make the right with their right hands, which seems like a bad idea. He did have hobbies, though, things he enjoyed doing when not under his father's abrasive thumb, namely hunting and archery. Hunting had always been a big thing in Pocahontas, a widespread local pastime, so he picked it up pretty quickly and fell in love with it, enjoying the quiet and solitude of the woods, the feeling of having the power to end a life in the palms of his hands. So I, I have to say, like, I always thought I'd quite enjoy, not enjoy, but I always feel it was a bit hypocritical. To, like, I like meat, no problem eating meat, not a vegetarian in any in any way shape or form but i always thought you know if you're not willing to kill an animal if you're if you're willing to eat meat you should be willing to kill an animal and i always thought like hunting would be an interesting experience whether that would change my morals or ethics around that and frankly if hmm, eating meat's a complicated one i just like meat a lot i'm not really morally okay with the killing of animals though which is complicated like i find that I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? We're just killing all these animals to just eat their delicious flesh. Anyway, and even as I talk about killing animals and eating their delicious flesh, my mouth is watering because I'm thinking about eating meat, which is super weird. But I always thought I'd like to go hunting because then I'd know what it's like to kill an animal and then eat it. And then a friend of mine was telling me about how he went hunting and he thought exactly the same thing. He was like, yeah, we'll go out hunting. And uh, he was like, but it's not what you think. Because he was like, yeah, I shot this like, deer or whatever he was hunting and he just didn't kill it and so he's like tracking down and he was out there with an experienced hunter and so they're like tracking this deer so they can kill it and this deer's like suffering and all of that stuff and i'm like well that's completely different now like, i don't want to like torturing animals is weird like i'm not into like eating lobster and stuff like that because it's like well i just don't like torturing animals before we eat them um so yeah, I kind of went off hunting after that. Sorry, that, that was a tangent. Let's get back to this. Throughout his younger years, Robert was an outsider, a loner. He was painfully shy and awkward. His horrendous stutter not helping matters. He was ruthlessly bullied at school for his speech impediments, only furthering his need to keep quiet and to himself. On top of that, Robert was cursed with terrible acne that over the years scarred and pocketed his face, only contributing to his shyness and further bullying from his peers. Hansen once even described his face during that time as one giant pimple. Because of all of this, 
He had more than a little trouble in the female department. All the pretty girls he wished to get to know better wouldn't give him the time of day. And while I think many people can sympathize, especially during those awkward teen years, Robert internalized all of those negative feelings. He lets it all boil and simmer as it slowly turns into an unadulterated hatred for women, especially those that he considered attractive. And he would fantasize about things, things such as revenge and all the hideous and grim ways he could enact it. Much of this, you guessed it, went into his big game hunting, visualizing those he hated when he stalked and killed his prey in those quiet, lonely woods. As I said, it only gets worse. Down the dark and bumpy road. Come 1957, Robert was 18 years old, and he made the call to join the United States Army Reserve. He wanted to do something meaningful. He wanted to make something of his life and leave all of his troubles behind him. He only served a year, but it seemed to do the trick, at least initially. Once his contract was up, he found work as a drill instructor in Pocahontas and even managed to get married to a nice young woman by the name of Carolyn Jean Willis that he met in town. Things were really looking up, until Robert's hatred and petty insecurities bubbled up to the surface again. What truly started the process is anyone's guess, but for one reason or another, Hansen felt mistreated by those in the community, so much so that all the terrible memories of his youth came flooding back. He wanted payback. He wanted vengeance. This is broken, though. Like, if you want payback and vengeance because the girls didn't like you in school, that's just like, you're an adult man, man. Get over it, Jesus. Now, he couldn't go about and take it out on all those that wronged him. That would take too long. No, he did the next best thing, and he marked off a notch on the good old serial killer checklist. He is going to kill animals or something? No, he's too late for that. That's a kid thing. What's he going to be doing? stalking people what's the first i don't know let's find out in 1960 at the age of 21 hansen convinced a young employee from his father's bakery to join him on a little drive pulling up to the pocahontas county board of education school bus garage he took his revenge for his unpopularity and years of torment by burning the whole garage and every bus inside to the ground what are you doing this is i, I feel like him doing this it's like he's taking his revenge it's like no he's crazy He's lost, he's like, he's not right in the head. Who are you getting revenge against? The school board? Because the girls didn't like you? There is a huge disconnect here. Get your shit together. This brought a big sick smile to the face of old Bob. However, the kid did not feel the same way. Soon after, he went and confessed to the police and Hanson was arrested. He was convicted of arson and sentenced to three years at Anamosa State Penitentiary, but he would only serve about 20 months before he was let out early. While behind bars, he was diagnosed with manic depression, aka bipolar disorder, with periodic schizophrenic episodes. The psychiatrist who made the diagnosis noted that Hanson had an infantile personality. Well, that explains why he's still feeling his need to get revenge. Uh, for the girls not liking him in school, and was obsessed with getting back at people he felt had wronged him. Just the kind of guy who you want walking the streets of society unsupervised. Am I right? No, 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 God, no. Don't, after you've been to prison, don't, they, they watch you for a while. There's like halfway houses and then um, uh, parole officers and all of this stuff to make sure that you are not a criminal, right? And you go, you're on lists for a while. There's going to be like the watch that guy, make sure he doesn't set any fires because <laughs> he burned down a big building. And on top of all that, while he was away, his wife Carolyn divorced him, leaving him incarcerated, alone, and positively fuming. Mate, this, this is, you are getting angry at stuff that is entirely, like, you're angry because your wife left, left you while you were away in prison for burning down like a bus depot. What did you expect? I mean, even if she didn't leave you, 
why what, you've only got yourself to blame regardless he was released in 1962 though he would return to jail several times over the next few years mostly due to petty theft still he must have been doing something right in 1963 to get married for a second time this time to darla marie henriksen a devout christian with whom he sired two children the great white north In 1967, Robert said screw the continental United States and moved with Dahlia and their kids to chilly old Alaska, or as I like to call it, Canada's oil-soaked hat. <laughs> also, like, if it's always like, and then he left the continental United States with brighter pastures. You're like, surely Hawaii, surely Hawaii, Alaska. Why? Hawaii is like a tropical island in the middle of the Pacific. That's got to, it, it looks super nice. Alaska looks cold and the Sarah Palin there. It was Anchorage where they settled, and this brought up the question of what the family would do for money. Why would you? <laughs> Let's move to Alaska for some reason. I was like, surely you're moving to Alaska for work. Don't people move to Alaska? I mean, there's two reasons to move to Alaska, to run away from the, 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 the feds, or to because you've been given work doing like oil mining, oil mining. I don't know, what's it? Do you mine oil? Is that a thing? Like oil drilling, that sort of stuff. I'm just kidding. I love you, Alaska. Alaskans, you're the best. Well, by opening a bakery, of course, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, it seems, and his time working in his father's bakery back in his younger years made Bob the Baker a pro at it. He became well known in the town as a choir man who made fantastic pastries and cookies and pies, as well as donuts and cakes. Darla busied herself as well by tutoring young children to make extra money, putting a master's degree in education to good use. And what would Robert do when he had some free time all to himself? Well, he'd go hunting, of course setting several local hunting records in the process. Now, if I didn't know any better, I'd say this sounds like the fresh start that Hansen really needed, literally as far away as he could possibly get from all his past troubles. Far away from the town that caused him so much grief, far away from the people that caused him so much pain, this was his chance to move on and have a good life with his family, a family that truly loved him. Sadly, the darkness doesn't care about fresh starts or new attempts at happiness. The darkness waits, it lingers, and it chooses its moments to rise and, well, fuck everything up. The first, yeah, it's like, well, I love that, I love that, that phrase. Wherever you go, there you are. And this applies here. I like that. It's just so true. The first cracks in the mask of Robert Hansen occurred in 1971, and unfortunately, there were a lot more than just cracks. First, he barged into the apartment of 18-year-old Susie Happard, kidnapping the young woman at gunpoint. She managed to escape, and he was arrested, but served only three months in prison after a grand jury found him guilty of assault with a deadly weapon. Wait, he kidnapped somebody? That is way more than assault with a deadly weapon. He kidnapped, he tried to kidnap her. She escaped. Good Lord, what would have happened to her? He needs to go to prison for years, and then be on one of those lists we just talked about. Christ. Then only a few days later, he kidnapped and raped a topless dancer. He then proceeded to drop her off at the side of the road and told her to run. His Ruger Mini-14 leveled directly at her head. She begged him to let her live, and he agreed to spare her, but only after she wrote down the names and addresses of her family, threatening their lives if she spoke about any uh, spoke to anyone about what happened. Um, I'd be like, yeah, okay, here's where my family live, but you know what you're not going to be able to do? Do anything to them when you're in fucking prison. You psycho. And now I'm going to the police. Then in December of that year, he was arrested twice. The cracks are growing bigger and bigger. The first arrest was for abduction and attempted rape of a housewife. The second arrest was, how do you get arrested for abduction and attempted rape? And then the next sentence is, his second arrest. How are you getting out? Were you, 
Bale sh is stupid, and if this is Bale, or did you manage to get away with it somehow? Fucking hell, police, what's going on? The second arrest was for raping a sex worker. In the first case, Hansen pleaded no contest to assault with a deadly weapon in the offense involving the housewife, all while the rape charge against him was dropped thanks to a plea bargain which saw him sentenced to five years, only to serve six months of said sentence before being placed in a work release program, only to shortly be fully released to a halfway house. Can you say injustice? Oh my god, Matt, yes we can. What the fuck? This is insanity. Six months? He's kidnapping and raping people. Now at this point, a sense of fearlessness began to build up in Hansen. He'd done all of these crimes both in Anchorage and far back in Pocahontas, and had served almost no time for it, barely any sort of true punishment. He'd been emboldened by this, made to feel unstoppable, like no one and nothing could touch him. That feeling only grew in 1976, when Hansen was once more arrested, this time for larceny for stealing a chainsaw from a local Fred Meyer store. He was sentenced to five years once again, only for the courts to shortly commute his sentence and release him with time served. You literally can't make this shit up. That is disgusting. This guy, that is insane. This guy is a danger to society. He's doing all sorts of crimes across the board, and he's just constantly just being free. He's also got this massive criminal record. How are we not doing more? As all this took place, Darla was none the wiser. She'd gone to say that she knew her husband was up to no good, but the worst she thought it could be was that he was unfaithful, that he'd pick up sex workers in the middle of the night, along with verbally abusing her and their kids on a regular basis. How such a smart and capable woman could be so damn clueless is almost unnerving. Was the mask so firmly in place that she had no idea? Was he that good at pretending to be a normal, nice, caring person that he not only had an entire town fault, but the person closest to him on a daily basis as well? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on because yeah we, we've seen it before people are really good at that apparently so and it didn't help that Darla and the young children would regularly go to Arkansas where her family lived during the summer unbeknownst to them and to everyone in Anchorage including the police the bodies had already begun to pile up the darkness had won and Anchorage had already begun to pay the hefty price bones in the snow It was the late afternoon of September the 12th, 1982, when the shadow over Anchorage fully began to take form. That night, two hunters and off-duty cops were enjoying their time off, spending the day in the wilderness hunting and hiking. As afternoon crept into dusk, the two men decided to set up camp for the night. Making their way to a safe location, they settled on the bank of the Nick River. As they began to unwind, they noticed something strange sticking out of the sand. Moving closer, they froze in horror as they quickly deduced exactly what it was. A skeletal human leg. Leaving the site undisturbed, they informed the police the next morning, and soon the area was swarming with cops. Digging into the sand, they managed to unearth an entire clothed female skeleton. Further examining the remains, it was determined that the woman had been killed by a shot to the back with a 223 caliber slug, the murder weapon believed to be a Ruger Mini 14 223 caliber rifle. Her face was also wrapped with an elastic ace bandage as if to blindfold her. Another detail is that when the fatal wound was found, her clothes were untouched. This suggested that the victim was nude at the time of her death and the killer had dressed her afterwards before burying the body. It didn't take long to determine the identity of this poor, unfortunate soul. The police had come upon the body of Sherry Morrow, a 23-year-old waitress and dancer who worked at an establishment called the Wild Sherry. She'd been reported missing back on November the 17th, 1981. And just a quick note here, but in every video or article that I've come across on this topic, if the story doesn't start with the incident with Paulson at Merrill Fields, 
they usually start here. That's because it's with this discovery that the police realized that things were looking grim for their city. They had a serial killer on the loose. Before the discovery of Sherry's body, two more sets of human remains have been unearthed. The first was a set of bones of an estimated 16 to 25 year old woman discovered by construction workers in a shallow grave by a Clutna Lake Road on July the 21st, 1980. She had been stabbed to death. Nicknamed Eklutna Annie, the body was so degraded and ravaged by wildlife in the area that they weren't able to identify her, and I'm sad to inform everyone that she remains so to this day. Truly an unfortunate set of circumstances, a young woman's name, lost time, maybe forever. The next body, also heavily decomposed, was found in a gravel pit several days later. This one was able to thankfully be identified as 24-year-old Anna Messina, who had been reported missing back on May the 19th, 1980. I feel like if they're taking DNA from these bodies, the former one particularly, eventually they're going to find out who this is, right? Or are those ancestry websites now not? Because this would be very useful for identifying who these bodies are, right? Which I don't know, like for hunting crim- criminals and stuff. Obviously, that's a ethical minefield about whether these com- companies should share that DNA evidence because I think that's how they caught the Golden State Killer. But it's also a pretty massive violation of privacy potentially, and using it to get people for you know crimes that are not serial killing is more questionable than like oh yeah we should use this to catch serial killers. But for identifying bodies and stuff, this could be you know quite a This could be possible, right, because of familial DNA and such. Things were quiet after that until the discovery of Sherry Morrow, and it wasn't long until another body was found in the same area of the Nick River, once more along its banks in a shallow grave on September 2, 1983. This was the body of 30-year-old Paula Golding, who had been reported missing on April 25, 1983. Like Sherry, she was shot in the back with the same type of gun. Once more, her clothes were untouched, suggesting that she too was naked when she was killed. The murderer redressing her afterwards. The police were on high alert, but they were no closer to finding the monster that was living in their midst, even when many of them went to his bakery every morning for donuts. If this was a movie, they'd, he'd be making Cornish pasties with their bodies and the police would be eating them, like some sort of rolled doll book. This was Robert's M.O., his way of murder. For years, he lurked under the radar, hidden in plain sight. He would stalk the streets, driving up and down the roads of Anchorage, looking for women to have his way with. They could be dancers. They could be sex workers. They could just be random women that he didn't like the look of. It really didn't matter to him so long as he got what he wanted, his sick thrills, his petty, immature need for revenge. After he picked his target, he'd convince them to get into his car, when just as they were getting comfortable and putting on their seatbelt, he'd whip out the handcuffs and lock them in, at the same time pulling his gun and sticking into their temple. One swift motion, Hansard would go on to describe it as muscle memory after doing it so often. Then he'd take them back to his house, and chain them up in his trophy room. And that's where his revenge would begin. He'd rape them, he'd beat them, torture them, all while thinking back to the bullies of his past, the women who rejected and ridiculed him all those years ago. And when he was done, well, what happened next would depend on his mood. Some women had returned to Anchorage and simply let them go, believing correctly, for the most part, sadly, that either they wouldn't say anything, or even if they did, no one would believe them, which is outrageous and a huge failure of the justice system. But for all the rest, let's just say that that's where his real fun would begin. 
Unchaining them from his basement, Hansen would stuff them in his car and take them to the airfield, where he would proceed to fly them to his cabin in the Nick River area of the Matanuska Valley. Known to locals as the Matsu or the Valley, it's an area in south-central Alaska of the Alaska Range, about 35 miles north of Anchorage, surrounded by mountains and covered in forests. Once they arrived, he'd get himself ready, untie them, and tell them to run. Oh my god, is he hunting them down? That is fucked up. What? Also, did he just fly 35 miles? That's like an hour's drive. What are you up to? <laughs> sometimes they were naked, sometimes they were blindfolded, but it didn't matter to the butcher baker. Being an avid and experienced hunter, he would stalk his prey for hours, at times even days. At times he would simply watch them from a distance, unseen and unheard, watching them struggle and flee, filled with as close to primal fear as I believe any human being can reach. At times he'd get close enough to slash them with his knife, not wounding them enough to kill them, but just enough to slow them down, as oh, well as giving him a new blood trail to follow. This is fucking horror movie shit right here. Isn't there a horror movie where this actually happens? There must be. It must exist. Then when he was satisfied, he'd take out his rifle, take aim, and put an end to their suffering, sometimes prolonging the agony with a non-fatal shot, only to listen to them struggle and scream, before walking up to them and ending it all. A true monster. The worst of the worst. Now, we've seen many sadistic criminals on this channel, but the sheer demented depravity and dehumanization inflicted on these innocent, frightened women is nothing short of demonic. The acts of a true psychopath. The cold-blooded predator, always watching, no matter how fast or far you can run. At this time, I think it's appropriate to inform everyone just oh, what the second half of this title means. It's a reference to The Most Dangerous Game, a short story published in 1929 by author and journalist Richard Connell. I've heard of this, but I don't think I've ever read it. The story revolves around a savage Russian general who lures unsuspecting innocents to a remote, deserted tropical island where he takes pleasure in hunting them for sport. Sound familiar? Wait, is this... Did they make a movie of this? Maybe I've seen... Not seen... I, maybe I've seen this movie. I feel like I've heard of this as a movie. It's not known for sure if Hansen was aware of the short story or not at the time of his crimes, but at this point, it probably didn't, doesn't matter. Robert Hansen was playing his own most dangerous game, but all games must eventually come to an end. <laughs> That's so dramatic. And just like that, we've come full circle. We're back with Detective Floth and Cindy Paulson, and they now have a name in regards to the man who'd kidnapped and assaulted her all those hours prior. Racing over to Hansen's house, officers caught him just as he himself was arriving home. The officers got out and asked if they could ask him a few questions. Surprisingly, Robert said yes and invited them inside. The trophy room was just as Cindy had described it, minus the chain, as Robert had hidden it before he and Cindy had left earlier in that day. Sitting him down, they questioned him about everything that Cindy had told him, which he vehemently denied. He said that he had never met the girl before in his life, and if anything, she was simply trying to extort him for money. He said, You can't rape a prostitute, can you? Um, <laughs> dude, <laughs> you know what rape is? Um, holy shit, man. Oh, sure, Bob, you can't rape a prostitute, and I'm Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. Talking about. Don't say that to the police. What the fuck? Continuing to speak with the officers, Hansen stated that his family was vacationing over in Europe while he stayed behind to hunt and run the bakery. During the time Cindy alleged that he had taken her and abused her, Hansen said that he had been with friends hanging out and drinking just a night with the guys. When asked, Robert's neighbor and friend John Henning covered for him, giving him an alibi for the time of the crime, obviously having no idea what he was actually doing by trying to help his buddy out against the police. Um, that sounds like a bad idea. Don't be giving people alibis. 
they're just your friends don't do that like or at least find out what they've done first <laughs> i mean i have to say as a really good friend i'm probably not that good of a friend people are like were you with john on this night i'd be like nah i was at home watching telly <laughs> okay i wouldn't even think about it i wouldn't even think to answer yes because i just wouldn't think that my friends were committing crimes why would they need an alibi with a rock-solid alibi, along with his humble and quiet demeanor, plus the fact that he was well-known and well-liked in town as a good man and amazing baker, the police simply shrugged it off and went on their way. Really? Um, you don't... Okay. No gathering evidence, no leave of that chain in the basement, nothing like that? Just ignoring old Cindy there? Okay. Cindy was disgusted and distraught, as is expected. Yeah, of course she was. <laughs> It's like, this just happened to me and you're not doing anything. You're doing dick all. What the fuck? Knowing what had happened to her, the fact the police were just writing it all off was unacceptable. The fact that she was a sex worker did not sit well for many of the investigators, and they even asked her if she would be willing to take a lie detector test in order to prove that she was being truthful about the whole ordeal. Cindy refused outright. Her trust in the police was already shaky at best, given her past experiences, and this was just the nail in the proverbial coffin. She refused to cooperate, and thus the investigation stalled for a bit anyway. Detective Floth wasn't deterred, though. He suspected that all the bodies they had found were all done by the same perpetrator, and he wouldn't rest until he found out who it was. In his desperation, he reached out to and got the cooperation of one FBI special agent, John Douglas. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's his work that was adapted into the hit Netflix series Mindhunter, the main character Holden Ford, played by Jonathan Groff. I love that show. Being based off him. He was brought in to create a profile of their killer based on all the information that they had up to that point. Oh, that's cool. I love it when they started. I just, that mind on the show. If you haven't seen that, I think there's two seasons. Um, I should check to see if there's a new season, although I feel like Netflix would tell me. It's amazing. Going through all that they had, Douglas put together a profile that sounds as though he had met Hanson and knew the man for, and had known the man for years. In Douglas's opinion, the killer would have been an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, have a history of being rejected by women, and would feel compelled to keep souvenirs of his murder, such as victims' jewelry. Do we know that he was keeping souvenirs? You could bet, you could bet, that if he's got that trophy room full of, like, bears' heads or whatever the fuck, you could bet that he's got trophies from the women. Jesus. He also suggested that the assistant might stutter. What? Uh, <laughs> he couldn't have been more accurate if he had tried. He might as well have said the killer wore glasses and had red hair. Using his profile, Floth went through suspect after suspect, person after person, until he arrived at one single conclusion. Robert Hansen. Using the profile and information, it was enough to get a warrant. Police surrounded Hansen's house on October the 27th, 1983, conducting the search as completely as possible. While going through his house, investigators found several pieces of jewelry bingo, that were quickly identified as belonging to the victims, just as Douglas's profile predicted. On top of that, while investigating his attic, multiple firearms were found hidden in the insulation, weapons matching those that were used in the murders. But what about his alibi? Well, that was handled almost immediately. Seeing police dare apart Robert's house, the wife of John Henning came out to ask what the hullabaloo was about. Upon being told the reason for the investigation, she was horrified. Right then and there, she'd announced husband's story, calling bullshit and saying that John and Robert hadn't even seen each other that day, let alone spent time together. And just like that, the case was blown wide open once more. I hope you're going to get in trouble for that, John. Because you basically allowed him to walk free for a while and he could have killed someone isn't that like impeding an investigation something like that i mean i guess it'd be quite easy to get out of because he'd be like oh no i just forgot <laughs> but still there should be some punishment for that all of that was enough to clinch things for hansen 
He was dead in the water, but there was one final thing left for the police to discover, and it would put everything into haunting perspective. Hidden beneath the headboard of Robert and Darla's bed was an aeronautical chart with little X marks all over it. I think we could practically feel the chill run through the room as the police realized that a number of locations marked with X were locations where human remains have been found over the last few years. And with that, Robert Hansen was finally arrested. Butcher Baker's hunt was finally over. Oh god, how many X's were there going to be? They said covered in it? That's got to be a lot, right? Also, don't mark down your crimes on a map. Come on. When put in the hot seat, Hansen denied that he had done anything wrong, that he had hurt anyone. He stuttered, he looked nervous, made himself look small and defenseless. He tried to manipulate the police, but they weren't having it. Dude, of course they weren't. There's a mountain of evidence against you. They confronted him with all the evidence, the weapons, the jewelry, Cindy's testimony, and finally the map. With all of this staring him in the face, and the fact that his rock-solid alibi was no more than ground-up sand at this point, Hansen buckled and confessed. He tried blaming the women. <laughs> Good luck with that defense. Saying it was their fault for what he did. <laughs> Holy shit, that is victim-blaming to the extreme. Which sounds pretty standard for a pathetic man-child such as him, but in the end, it was all Hansen, and he confessed to a spree of attacks, abductions, rapes, and killings that went all the way back to 1971. And as for the remaining X's on the map, they were indeed the locations where he had dumped the bodies of his victims. Writing down your crimes, folks, and marking them where to find the bodies, this guy just doesn't seem to follow the rules. There were 24 X's in total, and Robert Hansen confessed to killing up to 17 women and raping up to 30 in that 12-year stint that ended with Cindy Paulson. He was sent to trial, and in the end, Hansen was sentenced to 461 years along with a life sentence. A bit of overkill, but I'll take it. Sorry, Simon, no death penalty today. Did they not have death penalty in Alaska? I feel like Alaska they could. Or well, come on. <laughs> Prosecutor Frank Rothschild, when describing his transformation from a timid, dirty baker to the cold, calculated monster while in the interrogation room, stated, There's a certain evil genius there, the person who had killed all these women. I guess these serial killer types tend to be smart in a way. If they were truly smart, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing, but they're evil. They're smart, evil people. And then when pushed by the police on the abysmal things he had done he, and confronted with how much of a devil he was, quote, But all of the sudden, his neck turned all red, and his hair stood up on the back of his neck, and he transformed into the person who had killed all these women. Right in front of our eyes, he got really, really angry. End quote. As part of a plea bargain for a reduced sentence and only being charged with four of the murders, Hansen agreed to help decode his map and lead the police to the locations of the bodies it buried, in all twelve bodies of the seventeen claimed were found, and it's here that we sadly meet the lost women that this deranged predator stole from the world. Celia Beth Van Zanten, 17 years old, is believed to have been his first victim, though he denied it regardless of the ex over where she was found. Oh my god, dude. Why would you possibly deny that? She went missing on December the 22nd, 1971, and was found frozen to death three days later. As believe Hansen chased her into the woods and managed to lose her, and being barely clad in anything, she was lost to the blisteringly cold Alaskan night. Lost in the dark woods, terrified and alone, and slowly freezing to death, thinking of the monster out there hunting you, and wishing for nothing more than to go home. Couldn't think of a more tragic ending if I tried. The next two victims, uh, Megan Siobhan Emmerich, 17, and Mary Kathleen Thill, 23, went missing on July the 7th, 1973, and July the 5th, 1975, respectively. Again, Hansen denied killing them, and their bodies have never been recovered, though it's suspected that he killed them, thanks to the map. Roxanne Eastland was 24 when she went missing on June the 28th, 1980, and while her body was never found, Hansen claimed to have taken her and killed her. 
Lisa Petrell, 41, was his next victim, going missing on September 6, 1980, and her body wouldn't be recovered until May 9, 1984, from a location south of Old Knock Bridge, thanks to Hansen's aid. Angela Fish Altieri was next. 22 years old, she had gone missing on the 2nd of December 1981, and Hansen claimed her as well, even when her body was unable to be recovered. Sue Luna was next, a 23-year-old who had gone missing on May 26, 1982, when she had been hunted like an animal in the cold, only to be shot dead by Hansen. Her body was recovered on April 24, 1984. An unidentified victim was provided by Hansen in April 1984, but even he didn't know her name, only that he'd taken her in the early 1980s. She was given the name Horseshoe Harriet for some reason, but in an interesting twist, it was in October of last year that she was finally identified as 19-year-old Robin Pelkey. At last, this poor soul had a name back, a small light in the darkness of this case. Dylan Sugarfrey was next on the list, a 22-year-old whose body was discovered on August 20, 1985, by a pilot testing new tires on the sandbar of the Nick River. She was linked to Hansen rather quickly, and determined she was killed after Pelkey. The last four victims were all identified and located with Hansen's help between the 24th and 29th of April 1984. 25-year-old Malai Larson, 22-year-old Teresa Watson, 24-year-old Angela Fedham, and 20-year-old Tamara Tammy Peterson, all snatched off the street, all brutalized, all hunted, all killed, just that a sad, pathetic little man with a gun could feel big for just a little while. There were sights that Hansen refused to give up, and would never know why, but of a possible 21 victims, the bodies of 12 were recovered and returned to their families to be buried with dignity, more than Hansen ever gave them. I suppose that's as much closure and solace as we're going to get in that regard. During his incarceration, Robin made several prisons his home. First was the U.S. Penitentiary Lewisburg in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, until 1988, when he was returned to Alaska and briefly locked up at Lemon Creek Correctional Center in Juneau. His main home, however, was Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward, Alaska, where he remained until May 2014, when he was transported to the Anchorage Correctional Complex for health reasons. Robert Hansen, the butcher baker, the big game hunter died on August the 21st, 2014, aged 75, at Alaska Regional Hospital in Anchorage due to natural causes from lingering health conditions. I believe I speak for everyone listening to this right now when I say, well, fuck him. Yup. Wrap up. And that, as they say, is that quite a disturbing and deranged tale, if you ask me, and something right out of our worst nightmares. We've covered so many serial killers here on this show in the past, and they've all been awful, but something about this case... It makes hair stand up on the back of your neck. Just imagine being taken off the street, sexually abused, as well as physically and mentally for hours. And then, more likely than not, you're stuffed into a plane, flown out into the middle of nowhere, miles from anywhere, and then told to run. You do everything you can. Try to think of anything that could help you escape this monster, all while he's watching you, hunting you, stalking you from the bushes, the trees, the shadows. The feeling of being hunted. The feeling of eyes on you at all times, with no way to escape, only to lose it all in the end. It's a waking nightmare in every sense of the word. It is exactly the sort of thing that nightmares are made of. It's fucking horrible, you piece of shit. For 17 women, perhaps as many as 21, this was their final hours, their last moments. The feelings, the fear, I can't even begin to fathom what they had to endure at the hands of what, in the end, amounted to a petty, vindictive little man-child who never truly grew up and never managed to get over the hard times of his youth. Pathetic and immature, Robert Hansen took all of his frustration and hatred out on a group of women who didn't even know him, hadn't spoken to him, had absolutely nothing to do with him. And yet, 
He took everything from them, all while getting his sick kicks, prowling through the woods after them, knife and gun in hand, like they were nothing more than animals. You'd think that with a case like this, Hansen would be a much bigger name in the serial killer archive. But it really isn't. Not many people know the name Robert Hansen, the butcher baker outside of Alaska, that is. The main reason for it is probably because, as part of his plea bargain, he didn't want his name or the story in real detail to be covered in the press, so his name just slipped out of the public eye for a good long while. Until 2013, that is. That year, a film by the name of The Frozen Ground was released, a crime thriller. It's based on the final act of Robert Hansen's crimes, though a bit of dramatization is to be expected. Robert Hansen is portrayed by John Cusack, and this is the movie that I have seen, who pulls off the creepy casual vibe that the real Hansen gave off in real life. John Cusack is really good. Like, I, I vaguely now, I saw what, 10 years ago, nearly 10 years ago, like, I vaguely remember this, but you could just imagine John Cusack doing this perfectly. It also gives good performances from Nicolas Cage as Detective Jack Halcombe. I don't even remember him being in it. Inspired by Glenn Floth and Vanessa Hudgens, who played Cindy Paulson. Serial killer films usually range from terrible, terrible to pretty well done, and I'd say this recreation falls into the latter category. I'd recommend it. Regardless, it was because of this movie that Hansen's name was put out there in the public eye once again a year before his death. He's still not as well known as people like Bundy or Gacy. And honestly, that's a good thing. The victims are those we should be remembering, regardless of how fascinating and interesting a serial killer case can be. Celia Beth Van Zanten, Megan Siobhan Emmerich, Mary Kathleen Thill, Eklutna Annie, Joanna Messina, Roxanne Esland, Lisa Futrell, Malai Larson, Sherry Moreau, Andrea Fish, Alatieri, Sue Luna, Tamara Tammy Peterson, Robin Pelkey, Delyn Sugar Frey, Angela Fedden, Teresa Watson, Paula Golding, and finally, Cindy Paulson, the one who brought the authorities directly to Hansen's doorstep. Rest in peace. As for Hansen, as I said, fuck him. All I can see when I look at him is an empty, pathetic, worthless little man who never truly got to enjoy life as he clung desperately to his useless hatred and asinine thoughts of revenge. If there is a hell, I think it's safe to say that he's having quite a miserable time down there, and I'd like to think Lucifer has a sense of humor, so maybe he'll slowly be baking him into a hellfire cupcakes and brimstone donuts for all eternity. I'd just rather Lucifer just hunt him down. Like, quite consistently, like the stuff that nightmares are made of. And that's where we end today's rather depressing episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you for watching or listening. If you enjoy the show as a podcast, please leave a review. It helps get this show in front of more people, which is fantastic. Like, subscribe on YouTube, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.